Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday. It is, I believe, the 19th of June. Michael, how have you been? Feel very well, Gary. Enjoying the sunshine and the good weather for as long as it lasts, which is not very long. It's now gone away. So I suppose we will we will start with the president, Michael, because why not start with the man in the highest office? And to give the listener, assuming they... they haven't been paying any attention to this, what's been happening with Michael Liggins. I can explain it thusly. If you've ever seen someone, let's say at a party or an event, say something absolutely moronic, or just offensive, or crazy, the sort of thing that brings an entire party to a standstill, and focuses a lot of attention on that person, and then they panic, and they, you know, do something, whether it's vomit, or start screaming randomly, or strip naked and run through the streets, just to distract people from whatever it is they did just before that. That's been Michael D. Higgins' week. Well, to a degree. I mean, I'm not 100% convinced that Michael D. is, in fact, really that aware that he has said anything which is either controversial, problematic, stupid, asinine, ridiculous, or crazy. I think he did. I, I think he was aware. For the first time in as long as I can remember, Michael, Michael D. Higgins said something and then suffered the consequences of saying it. So Michael D. Higgins came out and there was a massacre. In, uh, in Nigeria in a church. I believe about 50 people were killed. And Michael D. Higgins put out a statement about it which was basically totally unrelated to the massacre but gave him a chance to talk about climate change. That's all well and good. That's your standard Michael D. Higgins thing. The problem was is lots of parishes in Africa actually care quite a lot about Ireland and keep an eye on it because so many of their parishes uh, were created or grew with the help of Irish people. So there is a lot of a link there between the churches. That would be very true in Nigeria. Particularly, yes. And one of the bishops responded to Michael D. Higgins uh, with an open letter, which was very kind, I thought, but also pointed out that this had absolutely nothing to do with climate change, and it was kind of offensive that he would say it did. And this led to, uh, Michael D. Higgins was asked what he thought about this letter, and his spokesperson came out and basically said that Michael D. Higgins had never linked this church attack to climate change. Which is problematic because his statement was written and you can look at it. I think there's two things. First about the statement I'd like to say. Yes, the statement made a very clear connection, it seemed to me. Well, a definite connection rather than a clear connection, a definite connection with this terrible massacre and climate change. I think, Gary, you tweeted in what was a rather black, but I thought absolutely accurate tweet that he was willing to climb over the bodies of 50 people in order to get to the point that he wanted to make. It was distasteful. I say not clear because I, I don't know about you. You read the letter or the, rather the statement he made. I, I thought it was written in a kind of a weird way, actually, for a man who was a well-known writer and poet. I thought it was really weirdly written. It was it was very, it wasn't coherent. It, there wasn't any kind of, it seemed to me, proper linear structure. It was statement, statement, then this desperate jump to climate change. Well, I, I think saying statement, 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 then climate change, it was more statement, many dead, now let me talk about climate change. But you're right, it, it, there, was no, there was no connection to it. It kind of seemed like he just wanted to talk about climate change. And actually here, where his spokespeople are saying that he never attempted to link the two, in a way, I can see that being true, but also much worse because if that's the situation he basically went well yes 50 people are dead but have you heard my views on climate change yeah so basically that's all very sad now three paragraphs on climate change i don't know if it was deliberately done like this we could, one can only speculate you read i'm sure the article in the irish times reporting his 
rejection of the notion that he had made this link. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a rather beautifully constructed piece in the Times, to be fair, that it was, well, I didn't say this, and I didn't make that connection. Then there are these quotes right there from what he had said, which was basically, yeah, you did. But I didn't. No, yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, it, it was pretty savage in a sort of, I'm going to let you talk and then immediately show that you're lying to me. Um, but then, Michael, so th- this all happens. And for the first time in as long as I can remember, Higgins actually looks like he might be damaged by something he said. Because he is very used to just being able to say anything or behave in any sort of way and just have it not covered. So for those who don't know, Higgins does not deal well with pressure. Higgins does not deal well when he is angry. And Higgins, well, Higgins gets angry pretty easily. And like all of us, Gary, he does not enjoy criticism. No, but there's a difference between how you and I might enjoy criticism, Michael, and how Michael D. Higgins enjoys criticism. Well, in fairness, Gary, we get an awful lot more of it than Michael D. does, so we kind of get used to it. But he has he has a well-worn reputation among staffers and media personnel and other politicians for what he is like. He doesn't like being challenged. He doesn't take it well. So this comes out, and it's actually, it looks like it could be damaging, because, again, it's 50 dead Africans, which is not a great look, particularly amongst the more progressive camp, Michael. And then he comes out and starts talking about housing and how the government is making a hames of housing. Now, the interesting thing I thought about that, Michael, was the timing of it. Yeah. As criticism is levelled on Higgins and he starts as again for the first time in years looking like he might actually be hurt by something suddenly the story entirely switches and it's now about Higgins saying this thing that the government didn't like and I have to imagine there was an element of strategy in that yeah I, as you know Gary I don't like to think ill of people I thought it was one of the most cynical pieces of emotive manipulation I've seen from a politician in this country for a fairly long time and I was baffled as I often am in life by the reaction of so many politicians and media outlets okay now you know, you, you, we get tired of talking about this but you know the way every everybody now is brave and everybody now is courage courage and passion passion courage and I kept on hearing about you know the obvious passion which he talked about the fact that we were in a how that we are now in a disaster the courage he showed that he, he stood up as a voice and talked about Gary number one Michael Higgins said Michael Higgins said there was a housing crisis right a disaster I suspect that Michael D. Higgins also knows that rain is wet who in art how is this a brave and fantastic everybody knows this the dogs in the street know this this is a, a commonplace this is a banal nonsense to say we have a housing crisis I wrote a blog a gobshite and gory I wrote a blog I think eight nine years ago saying we have housing uh, we homelessness crisis in this country we have a real problem with the cost of housing and the cost of building and the lack of building and this is only going to get worse it was eight or nine years ago i think it was 2014 i'm absolutely sure and here we are in 2022 and he's now telling us he's noticed he has noticed, Gary, that there's a housing crisis. Well, wow, well done. By the way, who caused this? Who was responsible for this? If it wasn't precisely people like Michael D. Higgins and the policies that Michael D. Higgins would advocate and the policies that he pursued when he was a politician. He talks about, there's a quote in that, which is in the Times, which gives it as a quote saying, that we should never have left the provision of housing and basic services to the market, Gary. And therefore, he is making a clear, a clear 
political and ideological statement that this crisis, this disaster that we have is a result of market-based policies. Yes, because, Michael, when you look at non-market-based entities in Ireland that are fully in the control of the state, like let's say the HSE, one is simply an awe of their efficiency and capability. No, I, I, I don't want to, we're going to inevitably do it to a, degree, uh, to a degree here again, relitigate the whole discourse about housing policies and rent controls and state building of houses and all of that stuff. But in 2009, there was a new piece of legislation was passed regarding the regulation of housing in this country. And in 2013, we saw the effective abolition of the bed sit. Right now, in 2013, gobshites in Gori and gobshites in Navan, I believe, as well, and other places around the country said, You know what, lads? This may well have an impact on housing and homelessness in this country if you take out, without replacing, a certain number of housing units, particularly those at the bottom ends of the market. This may actually have an impact. And when it did, Everybody stood back in amazement. How could this possibly happen? We had a situation here, Gary, where the numbers of houses, because we had the crash and because people weren't buying or selling, because there was essentially no market in, in property for several years, nobody was buying, nobody was selling, nobody was moving, people were living at home, people were unemployed. There was very little demand. But what there was, was a growing population and a pent-up demand coming. And we weren't building houses. And it was patently obvious. One day, those people who were living at home with mom and dad were eventually going to want to get out and start to buy a house. We act at the same time, because of the increase in the, because of the nature of regulations, economists working in the area of housing and building said, it's all there for anybody who wants to go and find it, that the cost, and we're talking now, a good few years ago, so these costs would have increased very, the costs to an individual built house purely on the basis of new regulation and new legislation, had increased the build cost by 30 to 50,000 euros. Again, not news. Anybody who was paying attention knew that for until just a few years ago, outside of places like D4 and D6, the retail price for a house, the second-hand house, was less than the build cost of the same house. Now, Gary, I'll ask you the question. If you're a builder and it's going to cost you 250,000 to build a house, which you're going to be able to sell for 235000 Is there much of an incentive for you to build that house? So, and there were other factors. I mean, these are, there are never just, there's never just one thing going, but there were many, it was obvious, obvious to anybody looking in, that we had created, we had created a situation where we were stymieing the construction of houses, we were increasing the costs of building, and there, and when eventually this market was going to rectify, we were going to face massive problems in meeting the demand. And here we are. We've talked previously about government ministers announcing programs that would explicitly make construction costs higher and congratulating themselves for doing so because it meant the minimum energy requirements uh, or ratings of houses would be higher. As if they didn't realise that, okay, yes, you've done that, but what about the price increases now meaning that less people can afford houses. What about that? Well, as you have pointed out yourself, Gary, and written about, the fact that when they never address the problem that all these costs are front-loaded. It's fine to say, yes, you will over 40 years, you'll get your money back. But I want to buy the house now, not in 40 years' time. So, And when my all my costs are front-loaded, how the hell am I going to do that? Where am I going to get the deposit from? How am I going to get the mortgage? How am I going to afford to do this? It's not really talked about, um, but it is actually one of the major ways in which people with money are able to get more money. It's by lowering the costs that they pay on things, by being able to pay for them up front, being able to buy higher quality versions of goods that will last longer because they can take the upfront hit and therefore over its lifetime pay a lower cost. This is true in every area in life. I mean, to give, if you want to get a very simple, banal example of that, 
if you can afford to pay 200 or 300 quid for a pair of shoes, right? Hand stitched leather soles, whatever. Then you can wear those. And then every so often you can go to a cobbler who will put on a new heel and a new sole and away you go. And you've another, for another few years, you have a brand new pair of shoes. However, if you can't afford that, but you have, you, all you can afford is to pay 40 or 50 quid for a pair of shoes or, or less, then you're paying a pair of shoes, which is going to be gone in the end of, it'll last you a year, maybe. Depends how you, how hard you are on shoes. But over a period of five years, you will have spent more on shoes than the guy who, who was able to afford to pay 250 quid for a pair of shoes in the first place. It's the joy of having a little bit of money at certain times, Michael. I think there is a refusal to understand that legislation on these things costs money, real money to real people. And will act, and that real money will have an effect on the market, the capacity of the market. Then we do not have a free, there is no free market anywhere in the world, Gary. The world is regulated. I'm not, I'm not even saying necessarily that I would like a world where there was an absolutely free market. Market is just a, a mechanism for discovering the price of things. It doesn't tell us anything about value, and no real conservative ever believed that it did. It, the, you know, Oscar Wilde's famous quote that the cynic knows the, the price of everything and the value of nothing. That's the market. The market knows the price of things. It doesn't know their value. And nobody, no conservative would ever confuse price with value. But price is very important when you want to consider how you allocate resources within an economy. And you know, how this is going to affect the price of something, it should be something that you consider when you pass legislation. Ronan Lyons, I think it did a, a piece on, and again, we're talking several years ago now, so the, the, the figures are way off. But there was a time that they actually changed it back afterwards. So I think that if you remember, Gary, the single, the minimum size build within, say, a one mile uh, radius of Central Dublin for a new build was 65 square meters. I think that was reduced to 45 square meters after, but I could be wrong on that. I'm not sure. And he, that, anyway, when he was doing it, this was the base cost. And he said, at the time, there are all these regulations. For example, you couldn't have north facing aspects. Now, I don't know how you build something that doesn't have some north facing aspect, but there you go. North-facing aspect, you couldn't have north-facing aspect. If you went over a certain number, you had to have you had to have an elevator. You you, uh, you couldn't have just stairs. You had to have underground car parking. When in other places in cities in the world, in the developed world, they say no car parking spaces or very limited or elsewhere because they actually want to discourage people from bringing cars into the centre of a city, where in theory you shouldn't need them or you shouldn't need them as much or you sh if you want them you have to pay a, you have to pay a premium. And he worked out with including VAT and a 15% markup for the builder that the cost, the new cost of this unit on retail, and this was, remember, we're talking about the basic unit within a, a mile radius of the centre city, was €450,000. That's your starter home, Gary, 450000 to buy. Now, those prices, I'm sure, are long gone, if you could find them. That's not even the point, Gary, for me on this. He has no business as president saying it like this i mean maybe maybe the president has some function in talking to the government about their failure to do this like the queen might advise and say what well, you're doing this thing to the people but this kind of this kind of rhetoric public ideological political rhetoric empties the presidency of that vital characteristic of being non-partisan. And people say oh, the presidency doesn't really matter, it's only symbolic. Well, none of these things matter, Gary, until they do matter. It's the fundamental problem with anything like this. They don't matter until they do. They, and they matter when it comes to a moment of crisis. And if you get to a crisis and nobody, nobody now believes that the president is, in fact, a figure above politics, but he's, he's just somebody else. He's just another guy in the business of politics. He's just another guy in the business 
of getting headlines. Why should we listen to him? Why should we care? What's the difference? And that's a bad thing, Gary. That's a very, very bad thing indeed. The president is supposed to be old. This is the analogy I like to use. That he, you remember in ancient Rome, there was the, 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 the plebs had a tribune, right? Mm -hmm. And the tribune could go and veto in anything that he felt was not in the interest of the people. He could go to the Senate with the plebs, with the tribune's veto. The president, in a sense, is that tribune. He is the last person that stands between the people and the power of the executive. He has the capacity. He can refer bills uh, to, to the Supreme Court if he feels they're unconstitutional. But he also has that moral power. And you don't use that willy-nilly. You don't use that just for the sake, which I believe in this case, he did dishonestly and cynically in an effort to distract from other things he had said, perhaps, but just to, to feed his own sense of he, This was a narcissistic, reckless act of a man who's playing around with the institution of the presidency. I have a, a somewhat of a counterpoint on your uh, point about the importance of the presidency, Michael, which is this. In a democracy, you get what you deserve. And people voted for Higgins. And this is who Higgins is. It's always been who he is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. He was a 14-year-old when he was elected as a TD, and he's a 14-year-old now, stamping his feet and having a hissy fit. I don't know of anybody who was a member of the Labour Party when he went into the Parliamentary Labour Party who has changed as little as him, who has had as little ability as he has displayed to deal with the empirical reality of the graphic and desperate failure of socialism to do anything except impoverish people. This is the man who talked about the great success that Hugo Chavez in lifting people out of poverty in Venezuela. Michael, yet again, this is a man who, he first gets into the Shenandoah what, in 73? Oh yeah, in the early 70s, yeah. And then he stays there. And he, I think he goes to the Dáil for a while, then he comes back to the Shannad. Then, Actually, no, there's a couple of years in the 80s. I'm not sure what he did, but he keeps getting elected. And if he keeps getting elected while refusing, as you say, to face the uh, the empirical reality of what happened, well, then that's on the voter. That's not his fault. After a while, it becomes the fault of the voter. And if this is what the vo voter wants, well, this is what the voter is going to get. Yeah, I don't like it, but you're right. So, I, I look, this, there's no point... Uh, going on about this too much. I think we've given the man more time than he deserves. So I'm not sure if you saw this, Michael, but the Irish Mirror has a very interesting uh, story on a topic that I've been keeping an eye on. And it is uh, the number of people seeking asylum in Ireland. According to the Irish Mirror, it has increased by 700% on last year. Now, 100%. some of you might say... 700%. Some of you might say, well, last year we had COVID. And that is, you know, a fair criticism. And it's also something the Mirror thought of uh, ahead of time, which is not surprising because this was written by Michael O'Toole, their crime correspondent, who is some man who knows how you do these things. So they also look back at 2019 because, you know, that's the last year when you don't have COVID-19 impacting on these things. So compared to 2019, there is, and this is for the year to date, Michael, compared to the year to date in 2019, there has been a 164% increase in asylum seekers into the country. So from January to the end of May, 4,896 people sought asylum in Ireland. Now, 
What I find interesting is this, Michael. They asked the department or sources in the department why this was happening. And a couple of reasons were put forward. One was the claim that there was a pent-up demand because of COVID and that that was driving this increase. Mm-hmm. And the other one was that the British had brought in the uh, Rwanda policy. Okay. Which is currently, well, a matter for the uh, European Court of Human Rights. But what I just wanted to, why I wanted to mention the story, and it's just, it's particularly interesting, is is this. In migration studies, you have push factors and you have pull factors. All of the things mentioned by the department or the mirror's sources, those are push factors. Those are reasons why you may not go to particular places or why you, why you may leave your home country. Yeah. But they don't touch on the topic of pull factors, which are, is there something particularly in that country that might cause people to try and claim asylum there? And I find that interesting, Michael, considering that we've just had an amnesty for illegal immigrants. That's still ongoing. We have come out and said we will offer turnkey accommodation to certain asylum seekers. How they're going to do that, nobody knows, by the way. That's just one of those things. In the middle, as President Higgins has told us, of a housing disaster, how you're going to guarantee that and actually effectuate that, I don't know. But leave that aside. So there's a whole host of things we've done over the last while that could be a draw on people who are trying to claim asylum in any country. Now, some of those... Uh, would be perfectly legitimate people. Some of those won't be. The nature of a pull factor will kind of impact on both. But I just find it particularly interesting that when the department is asked by this, you know, by a newspaper, they can't seem to think of anything that may have happened in this country that we have done that might lead to an increase like this. It's all the fault of other people and things. Yeah. Isn't it curious though, Gary, if we are to accept what the department is saying, the indication would seem to be that the UK's policy of re- the Rwandan policy is working in as regards what the UK wanted to achieve, in the sense that if what they were trying to do was to reduce the pull factor for the United Kingdom, the Department of Foreign Affairs is not saying is that they have succeeded in doing so. I mean, it would seem to suggest that. Now, I have actually reached out to the, uh, the British and uh, some of the French agencies trying to see if they have data on hand as to uh, the trend in asylum seekers to date in their countries. Because I'd like to see if this is just due to a general increase across Europe. Mm-hmm. But it just strikes me, Michael, that if you were in a situation where you had done many things to make people more likely to turn up, and then more people started turning up, your first assumption should probably be that that's because of the things you did. But you see, Jerry, you're, you're mixing up causality with correlation. And to be fair, Michael, we don't have the figures that the department has. The Mirror has got some of them, but the department will have far more um, intricate figures. They may have some qualitative uh, interviews. So we don't know. But I just thought it was worth mentioning, less because I can explain it, but more it's a sort of this dramatic thing has happened in the wake of us doing a series of dramatic things. Yeah. Here's our list of reasons. None of them relate to what we've done. And maybe they don't. Maybe they're absolutely right. It's just one of those curious things that's worthwhile saying, that's a curious thing. I wonder what that was caused by. Mm. And of course, it couldn't be anything we've done. It must be the British uh, saying that they'll send people to uh, Rwanda. Mm. I'm sure Rwanda is a lovely country, by the way, these days. Yes, no, certain parts of it are apparently lovely. Uh, so I just, as I said, I just really wanted to mention it because I thought it was interesting that this is the way this is now being sold. Um 
it'll be interesting to see which what way this trend is developed. And if I do get the figures back from the British and the French, it'll be very good to actually be able to have a look at them. Because if, if the French figures haven't gone up, Michael, and the British figures haven't gone up, but ours have gone up, that's a bit weird. That will be a bit weird. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if it'd be related to the fact that we are again saying to people, you know, we will have a very soft touch on this as opposed to, let's say, the French, Michael, who will uh, pull you out of a van and beat the living shit out of you. Which we do not endorse. Which we do not endorse. But I suppose, Michael, the the interesting little topic at the minute. Joe Duffy. Joe Duffy and Liveline. And RTE. And now the Doll Committee on Culture. And uh, every trans organisation in the country. And the Free Legal Advice Clinic. And this is just sucking in everyone. Oh, and of course, the ICCM. Of course. Rushing to the barricades to defend free speech and liberty. I mean, yeah, in the same way that some sort of uh, traitor might do that before they shoot you in the back of the head. So we presume, maybe, maybe the listener hasn't heard of it, Joe Duffy decided he was going to have not just one show, but multiple shows about transgenderism. And that... I've only listened to bits and pieces of these shows, Michael. I haven't listened to the entire thing, and I have no intention of it because it's a great deal of content. Mm-hmm. And I find Joe Duffy. Um, there was a there was a piss take of Joe Duffy on I think the Savage Eye, yeah. which basically yeah. has uh, yeah you've seen it. It's fantastic. I'm not a fan of Anton Savage, but that particular skit is brilliant. I'll I'll put it below so that you guys can see it. And that's kind of always how I felt about Joe Duffy. I find it voyeuristic a lot of the time, and it makes me just kind of uncomfortable. So I don't listen to it. He's hugely, hugely popular and very important commercially to RTE. I know he's immensely popular commercially to RTE. And it's actually part of the story here, Gary. Well, I suppose it's the old standard thing. So Joe Duffy does these shows. Some of the trans and LGBT groups get very, very offended uh, because of the shows, I've seen things saying the shows are hateful, discriminatory, uh, discriminatory, transphobic, vile, black, white, pot, kettle, pretty much any anything you can attach to them, I've seen attached to them. And then they demand that RTE apologise. So Dublin Pride breaks off its relationship with RTE, a relationship which probably shouldn't exist in the first place. Well, well that's not an unimportant issue, by the way. Sorry, Gary. That's the fact that RTE has this kind of relationship... The fact that a national broadcaster, which is funded by a license fee, should be in this kind of relationship is deeply problematic, to use the language of the of the hour. But anyway, go on. So they break out, Dublin Pride break off their relationship with RTE and then release a statement which demands RTE tell them how they are going to make this right. And then other people join in. So the uh, culture committee in the doll says that they're going to call RTE in to explain this. And then you basically have a variety of LGBT groups coming together and calling on RTE basically to apologise, to say they'll never do this again, do better. But you also see the involvement of groups like the ICCL, Amnesty International. They both signed a recent open letter attacking RTE, as did the Free Legal Advice Centre, which I've got to admit found a bit weird. But the problem here, and this I think is a, a very large problem for RTE, is Joe Duffy makes RTE fantastical amounts of money. Just grotesque sums of money. And it's all very well and good to say that you, you know, you're you totally aligned with, 
whatever political cause or whatever the current thing is, when doing so has no real financial cost to you. But as you can see on Twitter, if you, let's say, pick a global company and just look at their avatars and see which ones are in the pride colours and which ones aren't, you'll realise pretty quickly that people don't actually like losing money. So Middle Eastern divisions of companies don't tend to show the pride flag. You amaze me. Yes, it's, it's almost like Michael. Companies are going to try and extract money from you, and certain companies are willing to display an apparent adherence to popular political beliefs when doing so has no cost to them. It's shocking, I know. It's almost as if you're saying that, say, like banks or telecom companies that enthusiastically sponsor and support Pride in Dublin are doing so not because of a deep-rooted emotional commitment to LGBTQIA plus rights, but out of some kind of desire to hitch their wagon to some kind of marketing demographic that they want to appeal to. And if that were true, Gary, that would just be so depressing. I don't know if I would want to live in a world like that. Truly something that could only be said by the most cynical amongst us. But it yeah. does indicate, Michael, that RT has a bit of a problem. Because there are people you can throw under the bus if you're getting bad press. And there are people you really can't. And Joe Duffy is in the latter category. And I don't think he would have thought very highly of RTE, Michael, had they come out with a statement denouncing him. So that's just not really a runner for RTE. I was talking to somebody who works, shall we say, in the ambit of that. And their comment to me was that if this had been another, and they named a couple of uh, personalities, uh, they wouldn't have had a problem throwing them under the bus because they don't regard them as really being particularly strong commercial drivers and they can get somebody else to do the same job and it wouldn't be a problem. They'd even pay them less. But however, the problem was that when somebody approached the Joe Duffy show with maybe a, any chance of maybe some kind of a bit of an old apology there, that they received a chilly response and they said, well, okay, we don't want Joe Duffy going anywhere. Now, maybe this is all nuts. I don't know, but if Joe Duffy was even asked this or anybody approached the Joe Duffy show about this. But there's a very strong sense out there in the people who are sort of that media centre that Joe Duffy is just too important commercially. He's too big a part that anything that might upset him or, no, frankly, I don't know where Joe Duffy would go because I can't imagine that News Talk would be in a position to pay him or would News Talk want him or the people who work for News Talk would they want in this country? I don't know. I suspect this is known publicly and was probably covered at the time, but I don't actually know. It may not be known publicly. Newstalk did try and poach Joe Duffy a number of years ago, and they offered to increase substantially his salary uh, from where he was. And I think he was on about 400000 at the time. So my point is that Joe Duffy is not just a driver of massive commercial revenue, but that revenue is tied to his personality and himself, not RTE, and there are other entities that at least wear, maybe they aren't now, maybe they're no longer in a financial position to, but at least wear open to taking Duffy on. Like Duffy is rare in the Irish radio uh, and television space, to be honest, in that he legitimately does have other options. He is very good at what he does. I don't like it, but he's good at it. Back in the day when I would be talking to politicians who would be talking to me about uh, our, the dream, the dream was not to get on the inside pages of the Irish Times, not to be reported on the RTE website, but to get on Joe Duffy. If you could get on Joe Duffy with an issue that you were driving or a, a case that you were pursuing for a constituent, that was the dream. 
Because if you could get on Joe Duffy, you knew you were you were national. You were getting huge kudos. You were getting huge feedback. Duffy is a brand by himself. He doesn't rely on RTE. Other people are part of the RTE lineup. They're part, and that's where they derive their power as much as anything else. Duffy doesn't. Duffy is a standalone brand. Everybody knows Joe Duffy. And that's why Savage's satire is so effective, because in a sense, it's immediate, he is so immediately recognisable as a personality and as a style. And also, to be fair, a bit like Gay Byrne, for those listeners old enough to remember him, I wasn't a great fan of Gay Byrne. I didn't really like persona. But you had to recognise that he had a connection with what was going on in Ireland. He had a, a capacity to feel the pulse of the country that was very impressive. He knew what was going on. He instinctively understood. And he was very good at what he did. You could like or not like what he did. But you couldn't say he wasn't good at it. And Duffy is very good at what he does. And he has, an, he has a capacity to, to get the feeling, get the temperature. And without ultimately intruding his own, you don't really know where Joe Duffy is, do you? I don't know if anybody really knows where Joe Duffy is in the culture wars or in politics or in the left or the right or whatever, you know? One thing I thought has been quite marked is this. As I said, I've only listened to snippets of these shows. Now, I'm sure there's people who'd find things offensive that I don't find offensive in relation to this debate. Yes. But I've been reading all of these articles about it and i've been reading statements from various tds and senators and groups and the iccl these open letters and michael in not a single one of those instances have they detailed what actually was said on the show that crossed the line there's been a lot of the 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 that the debate denied the basic humanity of trans people which by the way is as a, a statement totally meaningless just vacuous nonsense. No one has said what he did that was wrong or that his guests did that was wrong. Uh, the Labour senator, senator um, uh, the Labour senator, Hoey, when she was asked about it on, I believe, Joe Duffy, where she was against Stella O'Malley, uh, said that... That's a tough game. Was, that, yeah, it's not a great one. Said that someone, that Joe Duffy had allowed one of his guests to misgender another guest. Now, Michael, <laughs> if that's the best you've got... I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the Irish Council for Civil Liberties should probably not be condemning you and TDUs should not be calling on your company to go into a culture committee so they can berate you about it. I saw a quote in one of the papers and I, I don't want to give the name because I may be misreporting, I may be misquoting it, but I don't, I'm fairly sure I'm not, but I want to say that of a, of a, a politician, a, a person uh, in influence, of influence, and this saying that this area should not be open. Now, the second part of the sentence, not so, but the first part, vigorous debate should not be should not be part of a vigorous debate. Now, I just found that weird, Gary, in that normally when we hear the platitudes and the banalities and the cliches from politicians, vigorous debate is something that they always think is a good thing. This is a positive. This is something we love. Oh, yes, vigorous debate. And I just thought that is a really weird thing for a democratic politician to say something should not be open to. To vigorous debate. There is this desperate desire in this case for this for certain groups to completely ring fence this. It's not that there shouldn't be that they want the debate to be of a certain tone. They want there to be no debate at all. And I'm not saying that rhetorically. Rather, I think I'm reporting what they're saying, that this is not a subject for debate or discussion at all. They are handing down something which has been written on tablets of stone on Sinai somewhere 
in ten year wherever and this is this is the truth this is what we say is the truth and you must accept it that's a rather uncomfortable position surely for a for a liberal democracy to have that kind of attitude let alone for politicians to be queuing up to endorse that kind of attitude yes but um they're not going to and i don't think anyone expected them to do you not feel, and I don't want to overake the pudding here, but the idea that RTE in this kind of context are being asked to go to the doll to a committee to defend themselves on this issue in this, when you when you actually look at the transcripts of what was said and what was done, they're going to be to justify themselves. Is that not a little bit prickly? Is that not a tiny bit Orwellian there? I want to give you some quotes, Michael, from this open letter, which again the Irish Council for Civil Liberties signed on to. Yeah. These episodes of LiveLine provided airtime to what we believe was a coordinated group of organisations who actively deny the basic humanity and rights of trans and non-binary people. The repeated use of the same speaking points and language is evidence of such coordination in our assessment. Yeah. By positioning whether trans people have a right to exist, are entitled to basic human dignity, have a right to live free of discrimination and harassment as matters of debate, LiveLine failed to recognise the vulnerability of the trans community, blah, blah, blah. Dangers and risk of this discussion were not adequately taken into account in the framing of the discussions. In defending freedom of expression, we must also consider that giving airtime to groups that would deny the basic rights of minority community has the effect of intimidating and silencing those minorities, while also contributing to their stigmatisation and isolation in society. Now... I'm just going to make the first point here, Michael. Again, this is the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Lots of others. Let's focus on them for a minute. The repeated use of the same speaking points and language is evidence of coordination in our assessment. So they are saying that the people who went on to LiveLine and gave views that they didn't like are part of a coordinated group of organisations who actively deny the basic humanity and rights of trans and non-binary people. They're saying that based on the fact these people spoke in the same fashion. That's all they have. You've got to remember, I mean, it's commonplace. It's been a commonplace. It's been said by serious people that all of this discussion regarding the coming from the counter narrative, say, on this issue, are people who are being funded by far right religious groups in the United States and in Britain and to something Ireland. This is paranoid conspiracy theory stuff gone mad, but it's been taken seriously. Other than the fact that, Christ on me, Stella O'Malley. Stella O'Malley has been funded, Maria, allegedly, by, according to some people, by right-wing conservative religious groups in America. Does she, does, she, does she come off as some kind of crazed Trumpian Republican to you? And this is just mad stuff, Gary. I am also curious why, the, uh, why Flack signed on to this thing. Like, why is the Free Legal Advice Centre, which is mostly concerned, Michael, as a charity, with attempting to improve access to justice, which is a commendable, a charitable objective... Why is it signing things like this? And also, if I was a um, if I was a, a lawyer and I was you know, looking over this statement, Michael, I probably wouldn't have put my name to something saying that a small group of identifiable people are part of a you know coordinated attempt to deny the basic humanity of trans because that might be considered to be a little bit defamatory. Also, Gary, does this not sound to you like an, a coordinated attempt by a group of people? To speak with the same, to produce the same ideas with the same language. Well, there's an interesting point in in this letter. They talk about Dublin Pride breaking off its relationship with RTE, and they mention that Dublin Pride consulted with the group who wrote this letter before that decision was made. So I would say you're right that this is absolutely a coordinated response. 
you might say that if you looked at a lot of the documents written uh, or published or used by different organizations in the country, that very often they actually do contain very similar language and very similar talking points. Well, I mean, if you think about it, Michael, there's the old regulars on stuff like this, where it doesn't matter what their actual charitable objectives are, they're going to be signatories of a letter like this. Like the Irish Network Against Racism is a signatory. Amnesty International is a signatory. The National Women's Council of Ireland is a signatory. So we want to talk about coordinated groups that use the same language and seem to have all the same objectives. Like there is a small group of Irish NGOs, most of which receive absolutely no funding from the public or very limited funding from the public and massive amounts from various trusts, foundations and or the state who seem to march pretty much in lockstep with this and seem to have a set of objectives that are outside the areas they should actually be concerned about. But again, they made the problem of picking on someone who's actually valuable. And I suspect they're going to get the same response that LGBT groups in the Middle East do when they ask companies to show public support. A very firm, we are committed to your welfare, please get out of our building. I don't know, maybe they'll crack, but I think they picked the wrong person for this. Unless, I mean, Duffy maybe? Would he apologise on his own? I doubt it. You're doing the kind of radio he does. Would it not set a very dangerous, very dangerous precedent for him? It also takes away his power, doesn't it? Whereas by not apologising, it, it, it just reaffirms and re-establishes, re-emphasises his power. You never know of these things. I mean, I, I, always, I think that at this stage, it should be obvious to anybody that apolog- that in, in, in these kinds of debates, which are, you know, Twitter storms, ultimately, break out of Twitter, apologies are useless. I did see uh, an interesting tweet from Ken Fox, the FOI specialist. Now, Ken is a bit... You know, from all the conversations I've had with Ken, he's a nice guy. Very clearly not a fan of Gript. Just not on the same side at all. Yeah. But he was making the point that um, people who are complaining about the responses of these LGBT groups, uh, that it's ridiculous to do this um, and argue that these groups are trying to bully people when RTE, you know, has all of this money and it's the national broadcaster. And I thought it was interesting and worth mentioning for this reason. It is an understanding of power that is childish. Because here's the thing, it doesn't matter how much money you have or what your capabilities are if you cannot use them in the circumstance you are in. So Orgie has political considerations that other stations don't have. And then it also has reputational concerns. The potential damage the LGBT groups can do to Orgie is either actually rather quite extensive if they know how to do it. And there's not a lot Orgie can do back to them because that's just not going to be a runner, either politically or internally. But there's just this sort of, well, this is a big corporation, and therefore it is the most powerful, and therefore cannot be bullied or controlled or influenced or anything by smaller groups. And that's just not how this works. RTE is also incredibly sensitive to the relationship it has with politicians, because ultimately the politicians are in a position to make decisions regarding the structure of RTE regarding the management of RTE, but also the funding of RTE, obviously the funding of RTE, and whether or not they might decide that the time has come to abolish the license fee or that everybody gets a bit of the license fee, all sorts of things. No, the RTE is very politically sensitive and has feelers out constantly. 
about how politicians and how in the doll are going to respond to any particular issue. No, it's nonsense to suggest that they have, yes, they do have power. They have very significant power, but only when, as you say, you can use, there's no point in having nuclear weapons if you're in a position where you know you can never ever, you, you can never use them. No, and that it also misses one of the most notable weaknesses of RTE here. The fact that it has many, many employees who are going to agree with the LGBT groups. Yeah. And that can actually be quite powerful but uh, no i just thought i just it just seemed like a, a very naive view from someone who is as well educated as ken fox I actually do have a, another good example of how power is contextual and situational michael if you'd like another one go on i had a, a friend when i was younger a uh, big guy like big big guy and uh his girlfriend who was like five foot nothing used to beat the shit out of him yes his problem here was that well obviously there were many problems here one of the problems was that People didn't believe that this could happen because he was so much stronger than her and so much larger that surely he could have, uh, you know, I mean, he could have leveled her if he wanted to. And people found that, basically argued that that was a reason why this couldn't be as bad as he said, but it was actually quite bad. I mean, she beat him quite badly uh, with, with various heavy things at various points. And it was shocking the amount of people who didn't realize that doesn't matter how strong you are if you're not willing to use it. And he was simply not willing to hit his girlfriend or even to try and physically restrain her in a lot of situations. He, he held no power. It's worse than that, Gary. It's not even, it doesn't matter how strong you are. It's actually, the stronger you are, the worse it is. I used to, <laughs> this sounds ridiculous, but it's true. On a few occasions, I got drunk with Marvin Hagler. Now, for listeners out there that don't know, Marvin Hagler was regarded in his day as possibly one of the greatest uh, pound for pound boxers that had ever lived. And Mervyn Hagler used to drink the matricula and occasionally used to drink in Pope Mahones in Milan, in Irish pubs. He lived in Milan, he was married to an Italian lady. I think it would be worth pointing out that uh, Hagler was famous for his sheer ability to knock you out. He won his fights by just KO. That was how that was going. As you can imagine, and I imagine this is true for anybody who has a, a bit of a reputation for boxing. Marvin, Marvin, my, my friend Marvin, told me that and this was at the concert of a friend of mine who got drunk and saw him. And Martin Haver is not very tall. He's a very big man. And my friend who was a rather tall, bean-poldy kind of guy, he, was from, he looked at him and said, I could take him. Look at him. He's only little. I could take him. <laughs> and myself and my, my mate, Gar another uh, Gary, actually, from Ballymore, used to Barry, put our hands on him and said, no, you couldn't. You really, really couldn't. But Marvin said his life was blighted by people getting drunk in pubs and coming up to him and wanting to hit him. Because they believed they could take Marvin Hagler. And the, he said, they can hit me all they like. I can't hit anybody because I'm Marvin Hagler. And there's a very decent chance that I get one good shot in. I'll kill the bastard. Nobody was ever going to say, ah, well, Marvin Hagler, he was provoked. God, God, what could you do? No, it, Marvin Hagler, he's a man in a pub, in a brawl. He had no power. He was absolutely powerless because he couldn't hit anybody because he was so good. Hagler wasn't, again, just to push this on, Hagler wasn't just a boxer. Hagler was undisputed champion for about a decade i think it was a mid he was he wasn't a heavyweight he was a middleweight middleweight yeah that's why i'm saying pound for pound he was regarded as the best he wasn't a heavyweight so he went through maybe a dozen title defenses and i believe i'm not i'm not actually sure he, I, i'm not terribly familiar with this aspect of his career but i believe he knocked every one of those challengers out just straight ko if he hit someone and something had happened that's not going to play well in a court. It really isn't. And he was also a very sweet man. He was not the kind of guy who would would actually hit someone. And when he got drunk, he was really he just smile and be happy and join in the singing. 
But yeah, he, he was he was toast. And can you imagine how boring it must be? You're out for a couple of pints and there's some gobshite coming up to you. Oh, Anthony, you think you're a great guy. Yeah, you know? God, leave me alone. But there he is, like RTE. Big and strong and powerless. Yeah, but you get that. But it is a very childish understanding of power. This is big, therefore it holds all the power and nothing bad can be done to it by smaller things. But that's never been true. In fact, oftentimes being very, very big and having a lot of money, yes, usually it's an advantage. But you get someone who knows how to use it against you or you get into a bad situation. And oftentimes that starts becoming a, um, a real big detriment. Is Hagler dead, actually? Or is he still alive? I think Hagler is still alive. He was only... I knew him in the 90s, 20 years ago. So I'd say... When I knew him, I'd say he was in his 30s. He, well, he looked maybe maybe a bit older, but I'd say he's in his maybe late 60s now, something like that. He was in good fight. He was a fit man. He was a fit-looking man then. As I say, nice guy. I have a fantastic photograph of the two of us, Stosius trunk wrapped around each other, and I'm wearing the most vile orange shirt you ever saw. It's one of my pre- my 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 most tre- treasured possessions. When people say you never met Marvin Hagler, I say there you go. There's me and Marvin. Before we go, Gary, there's just one very little one short little story I just wanted to bring to it, the attention of the listener because uh, I think it's just fun and it speaks to uh, discussions we've had before. It's kind of there's a story in the Wall Street Journal about uh, energy prices. And as we know, there's been a shortage of natural gas and there's just inflation all over the gaff and problems with oil production. But there's been a spike in energy prices across Europe, uh, particularly in electricity prices. And do you know what it's caused by, Gary? Not just gas. People, it's all the talk is it's just gas, 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 gas. Piss poor planning? Piss poor planning. You could say that, yeah. Do you know what happened to the wind? You know, all this wind power that we have. Too slow or too fast? Not enough of it. The wind stopped winding. There was a sudden slowdown in wind-driven electricity production off the coast of the UK, which, in the words of the Wall Street Journalist, is fantastic. Whipsawed through regional energy markets. I love that. It's a fant- I'd never heard that word before, seen it written. Whipsawed. Gas and coal-fired electricity plants were called in to make up for the energy shortfall from wind. So we now see that wholesale megawatt, it's gone up in the UK up to a hundred and sorry, to three hundred and thirty-one euro sixty-six cent a megawatt hour, right? At the beginning of 2020 in the UK, it was thirty-nine euro. Thirty-three a megawatt hour. So I'll just repeat that: January thirteenth, twenty twenty, thirty-nine thirty-three, and then went up. And this little this is a little while ago, but to thirty-three sixty-six a megawatt hour. Now this is some time ago, right? But my point is just simply this: that all the talk we're hearing about energy shortage and everything, everything is built on this notion that we can. Just bring in renewables. Renewables. We'll bring in solar. We'll bring in wind. It'll be fine. It'll be grand. And it is fine. It's grand. And I'm sh- we should do it. I'm sure it'll be lovely. But when it when the wind stops blowing, here's again, I go with gas and coal-fired electricity plants were called in to make up for the shortfall. If you don't have a backup, and Gary, am I wrong? Or is, do you not get the sense from Irish politicians that they have no sense of this? They don't seem to understand that unless you actually have an up and running, functioning, 
backup, which is not solar, which is not basically not wind, not reliant on something which is not guaranteed, then you don't have energy supplies. You have energy supplies sometimes, but other times you don't have any electricity. They don't seem to get this. No, they don't understand the concept of baseload energy, that you need a certain amount of dependable energy to just meet certain needs that can be then scaled up as uh, you see things like wind or solar fail or, or fall or whatever. They just don't get that. And we've seen in, in other European countries and in countries globally, actually, politicians putting in place policies which seem to pretty much kneecap their ability to produce baseload levels of energy, putting incredible levels of, of reliance on technology that fluctuates and it leads to all kinds of problems. And one thing I, I do note about this is that politicians have been very quick to say that the war is causing this, that it is Ukraine, that it is Putin, that it is general geopolitical instability through COVID in China. And obviously, yes, those things have played an impact. At certain points, they've played larger impacts. At certain points, they've played less. But one thing I don't think has been brought up nearly enough has been the impact of deliberate policy choices by governments. So, for instance, America is not doing well on gas prices. I saw an interview uh, recently. I believe it was the US Secretary of Energy, who is a a woman called Jennifer uh, Granholm. And Biden recently wrote to uh, to the oil companies demanding that they increase production. And some of the oil companies uh, responded to the Biden administration basically saying, we don't think that's a good idea. And the reason they did that, and this is what Jennifer Granholm was talking about, is that the administration's aim is that in five to 10 years, there's no reliance on those companies. And they're making the point that why would we scale up when you are trying to get us out? So if we build all these things now to help you now, In five or ten years, there's no demand left for them, and we've just built these massively expensive pieces of infrastructure that we now have no use for. So we're not going to do it. No internal coherence sort of thought thing. No, I just want to make clear. When I'm talking about these massive peaks in prices, that's not contemporary. That's that's from last year. I'm talking about in the context in the last few days, we've seen the same thing happen. There's we're looking at a a massive heat wave in Southern Europe and we're seeing a sudden decline in wind energy. And particularly Germany, Holland, the UK are especially reliant on wind energy. So part of the spike that we're seeing now is going to be fed in. Now, I'm not saying that we're talking to the same degree as we've had, say, maybe in, say, in 2021 or something like that. My point is that this is inevitable and it is cyclical. As the wind, as the weather is cyclical, so is production prices. So the problem right now, most, the vast majority is to do with the war, breaks in, breaks in supply chains and things like that, which is also connected to COVID. But that covers, that's like sauce covering up the bad meat. It, the longer the wind supply remains impacted by the weather at the moment, the more that that is going to be part of the story of the increase in in electricity prices and the spike. There is, there's an unwillingness to recognize it. There's, there's always an excuse. There's always something else. And oh, we'll, we'll work it out. We'll work it out. Somebody made a point to me, and I don't know if it's a valid one or not, but I thought it was an interesting. If you look at all of the plans for the next generations of submarines, large-scale submarine building, they're all based on nuclear, nuclear energy. None of them are based on batteries. There is no confidence in that sector, at least, that we're going, we're about to crack the problem of the long-term storage of electricity and batteries. But everything, you, when you hear the politicians talking about it, or people who are heavily into the, the, the renewable sector, we're on the point, oh, we're just about there, we're going to get there, we're going to get there, we're going to get there. And I, 
I hope we do. And in fact, I think we probably will because the, the human being is remarkably good at finding solutions to problems. But we have no knowledge. We have no way of knowing, Gary, when that will happen. What we do know is it hasn't happened yet. Well, I'm sure these stories will continue to grow. Uh, we do seem to be seeing somewhat of a uh, warming to nuclear energy, which, if we wanted a source of clean baseload, would be perfectly well suited. I mean, yes, there are some issues with it, particularly relating to construction speed, cost, but nothing insurmountable. And, I mean, frankly, we can just ask the French how they do it. Anyway, for the time being, let's hope that that sold that great uh, nuclear uh, power generator in the sky returns once more to shine on Ireland and generate some of that old solar temperature stuff that brings us so we can go down to the beach and have a swim. But until that happens, we shall wait indoors, I suppose, and wait. And we shall be back next Sunday, will we? We're back on Sunday? It's not, it's not another bank holiday, is it? So many. Did they give that one to? Did they? Did they have that one for Bridget? The one they was clearly some sort of, please God, women vote for us. Uh, Bridget is a woman, therefore we'll give it to her. I don't know. I, I, I don't know because I, I don't really care when they are. They just sneak up on me unexpectedly. Well, let's talk that the twelfth. You know, the twelfth, the glorious, the twelfth of July, the marching day, uh, should be made a bank holiday in the south as well. Anyway, we shall be back on Friday. All the best. Bye.